The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. In light of the fact that this is our recovenanting Sunday, we'll be temporarily pausing our journey through Genesis, and instead we'll be looking at Matthew 16, 18. And so for context, I'm going to read Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we know that in order to rightly understand both what this passage is teaching and how it connects to our lives, that we need the Holy Spirit. So please send your spirit to minister to us through this passage in a most powerful way this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. In uh, 1889, a pastor named A.B. Simpson started a church in Manhattan, just a block away from Times Square, called the Gospel Tabernacle. And under Simpson's leadership, this church eventually became the thriving epicenter of an entire denomination, one that we now know today as the Christian and Missionary Alliance, or the Alliance Church. Uh, This denomination at one time held the status of giving the most money per capita to support missionaries who were serving overseas. And A.B. Simpson's church was at the heart of it, the flagship church. So it had thousands of people and a thriving ministry that was making an impact literally across the globe. And I actually, about a month ago, had an opportunity to go and visit the Gospel Tabernacle there in New York City. I was in a a pastor's conference in New York, and I went and visited there. However, uh, today it actually goes by a different name, John's Pizzeria. That's right. This church that was once the the thriving 
center of missionary outreach has now been turned into a pizzeria. And yes, I did have some of their pizza. And yes, it was very good pizza. Nothing against John or his pizzeria. But at the same time, what a tragedy that this, this church at one point in time apparently lost its way and began to decline and eventually ceased to exist. And friends, if that can happen to the gospel tabernacle, then it can happen to any church. And not only is it possible for any church to gradually drift away from its mission and values, I would say it's inevitable unless we're deliberate about going back again and again to the Bible and reminding ourselves why we exist and how the church is supposed to operate. Our impact for the gospel tomorrow depends on our diligence in doing that today. Because drifting away from biblical fidelity isn't something that happens all at once. It happens gradually. So that's why we have to be ever so diligent about correcting our course whenever we get off track by even the slightest degree. And that's what I hope to do today on this Recovering Things Sunday. I'd like to remind us of what Jesus wants our church to be like. The mindset we should have, the goals we should focus on, and the way in general that our church should function. And the passage I believe the Lord's laid on my heart, as you know, is Matthew 16, 18. Because it's one that, unfortunately, that many churches today seem to have forgotten. And, of course, please understand that my intention throughout this message isn't to be critical of other churches, but simply to prevent our church from making some significant errors that we also are prone to make if we're not careful. Right before Jesus utters the words that we find in this verse, he commends Peter for Peter's wonderfully accurate insight that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then says a number of things to Peter that are very important and also very easy to misunderstand and are therefore very controversial. However, out of all the things that Jesus says, I'd simply like to focus on the five words we find in verse 18. I will build my church. And so our main idea this morning is that, well, Jesus will build his church. Uh, I had to study those five words, I will build my church, really hard to come out with that main idea. So I hope you appreciate my work. But the main idea of those words is indeed that Jesus will build his church. Now, notice that Jesus didn't say, you will build my church. As if we could accomplish such a feat by our own talent or abilities or cleverness. Nor did Jesus say, I will build your church. As if everything revolved around our desires and preferences. Now, Jesus said, I will build my church. It's very important that we get that right. Because a lot of churches haven't. And yet this statement might very well be the most important statement in the entire Bible about how we should think about church, and we might say, do church. 
And as we consider these five words from the mouth of Jesus, we understand that the church was purchased with Christ's blood, operates under Christ's authority, is advanced by his power, and ultimately exists for his glory. All of that is wrapped up in these five words. I will build my church. So let's take a look one by one at each of those truths. First, the church was purchased with Christ's blood. That's why Jesus calls it my church. When you and I were condemned in our sins and headed for eternal judgment, with no means by which to save ourselves, Jesus suffered the penalty for our sins when he died on the cross. So that's what his blood refers to, right? It's, it's a reference to his death on the cross because it's on the cross that Jesus endured the judgment that our sins deserved, thereby satisfying the justice of God the Father so that you and I would never have to face that judgment. A term that the Bible often uses to refer to this is redemption, which is actually a term from the ancient slave market. And back in ancient times, if uh, one of your relatives, let's say, was captured in a war and being sold at the slave market, you could redeem that person by paying the required sum of money. So essentially, you were buying them out of slavery. And that's what Jesus has done for us. Through his death on the cross, Jesus paid to set us free from our slavery to sin and from the, the judgment that our sins deserved. And because Jesus purchased us, we now belong to him. We're his. That's why Paul says in Acts 20, verse 28, that he refers to the church uh, as the people whom Jesus, quote, obtained with his own blood. He obtained us. And that's also why in our main passage, Jesus calls the church, my church. Understand, by the way, that the church isn't merely an institution or a building or an event that happens on Sundays. But most fundamentally, it's a people. People who have been purchased with the blood of Christ. By the way, that also means that the church is unspeakably precious to Jesus. In fact, the church is even repeatedly referred to in the New Testament as the bride of Christ. So I know it's popular for many people nowadays to speak of the church in a derogatory way. But that's actually a grave error. You can't love Jesus or be close to Jesus while at the same time despising his bride. It doesn't work like that. Like, for example, if you had a problem with Becky, my wife, and insisted on speaking about her in a derogatory way, well, then you and I can't be friends, right? It's not going to work because if you have a problem with Becky, then you have a problem with me. Likewise, if you reject the church, you're also rejecting Christ. He purchased the church with his own blood so that even with all her flaws, she's still unspeakably precious 
his son. Second, not only was the church purchased with Christ's blood, it also operates under Christ's authority. The church operates under Christ's authority. So that's another reason why Jesus refers to the church as my church. Jesus also says in Matthew 28, 18, that we recite together each Sunday, all authority, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Also, as Paul says of Jesus in Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. So since the church is indeed my church, as Jesus says back in our main passage, that means it's bound to operate according to his desires and instructions. Yet there seems to be something that many churches today have unfortunately forgotten. Many churches seem to have developed something of a consumer-driven approach rather than a Jesus-driven or Bible-driven approach. And the reason I say that is because it's basically the same approach that businesses take toward consumers. You know, kind of like Burger King and their slogan, have it your way. That's a pretty good description of what Burger King seeks to do. Uh, they design everything around the desires and preferences of the consumer from what menu items they offer to how they cook their burgers and what they put on their burgers and even to the aesthetic design and layout of their building right everything's oriented around the consumer and that's what just about all businesses do yet it seems as though this consumer-oriented mentality that's so appropriate for the business world has found its way into the church and with tragic results. So instead of seeking to discern what Jesus wants and what will please Jesus and glorify Jesus, many churches ask, well, what do people desire? Especially people who aren't yet Christians. What do people who aren't Christians want us to talk about? You know, what's going to draw the largest crowd? What kinds of beliefs and ideas are popular in the culture right now that we can jump on board with? What kind of a church do people want to belong to? What amenities will people enjoy the most? So those are the kinds of questions that determine what Sunday morning looks like at many churches. Questions that are oriented around the preferences of the consumer. And so, as a result, here, here's how uh, that, that works itself out. Many churches will downplay core gospel truths, such as well, human sinfulness and God's judgment and the need for repentance, because those truths aren't in line with consumer preferences. So even though many of these churches don't come right out and deny these offensive teachings, although some of them do, they still very conspicuously omit public mention of them most of the time. And so there are a lot of churches where you go in and you hear teaching that doesn't necessarily contradict the Bible, but if you listen long enough to that teaching, you'll notice that certain key truths and themes of Scripture somehow never seem to come up very much. And so the problem ends up being not so much what 
is said, but rather what isn't said that should be said. Again, not, not peripheral things, but rather core gospel truths like human sinfulness, God's judgment, and the need for repentance. In addition, many churches will also allow this, uh, they'll show this consumer-oriented mentality by employing various methods that are driven more by uh, a spirit of pragmatism than they are by biblical convictions. This often manifests itself in church services that are focused very heavily on basically entertaining people or uh, perhaps offering people what basically amounts to a group therapy session rather than nourishing people with substantive biblical truths. I've also seen a wide variety of gimmicks employed from time to time. Um, efforts to attract people that rely on famous personalities or novelties or maybe shock value instead of relying on the glories of Christ and the wonders of the gospel. Yet all of this ignores a key truth that we find in Matthew 16, 18, that the church belongs to Jesus. Jesus is Lord of the church and is therefore the one we should seek to please and the one whose preferences should drive our worship. And so all that effort, in my opinion, that's so often put into consumer research should instead be put into researching the Bible to figure out what Jesus wants, what he values, what his will is for the church. Friends, the church belongs to him and therefore should operate under his authority. See, according to the Bible, Christians aren't citizens of a democracy. We're citizens of a kingdom. And in this kingdom, Jesus is king. That's why he refers to the church as my church. Then third, we also see in Matthew 16, 18, that the church is advanced by Christ's power. The church is advanced by Christ's power. He declares, I will build my church. He's the one who will do it. Although we certainly have a role to play, that role is simply instrumental in nature. We're not the ones who build the church, but simply the instruments through which Jesus builds the church. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he nor plants, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So we can't grow this church any more than we can grow a plant. We can scatter seed and we can add water, but only God can give the growth. He's the only one who can bring change, true heart level change to people from within. You know, I once heard it said that we can control two things, the number of seeds we plant and the quality of the seeds we plant. And that's what we seek to do through our outreach efforts, both, both as a, a church and hopefully also as individuals. Like we want to plant as many gospel seeds as we possibly can 
and we want to try to ensure that those seeds are of the highest quality that's possible. The rest is up to God. He's the one who gives the growth. And when you think about it, this is actually incredibly liberating. Because I don't know about you, but I personally find it so comforting to remember that people's eternal destinies don't depend on me saying the perfect thing to them or phrasing things in the exact right way when I'm having a conversation with them about the gospel. I mean, that would be a terrible burden to carry. So praise God that it's not all riding on our shoulders. Instead, Jesus is the one who gives the growth and builds his church. You know, if we've learned anything from our church's study through the book of Acts this past year, it's that the church advances by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully you picked up on that not-so-subtle theme, right? Um, Because the Holy Spirit is all the early, early church really had when you think about it. I mean, they didn't have buildings. They didn't have lots of money. They didn't have cultural respectability. And yet, the gospel spread. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of Jesus, we might say, through the Spirit more specifically. So back in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, I will build my church, that's a truth that should echo through our minds. The church is something that Jesus builds by his power, not something that we build by our cleverness. And so, now here's where all of this gets super practical. Prayer could not be more central to the life of a healthy church. Now, a couple weeks ago, God impressed on my heart uh, a thought, a very distant, distinct thought. And that thought is that if you merely engage in human effort in an attempt to advance the gospel, then you'll only see what human effort can accomplish. And if you want to see what God can accomplish, that begins on your knees in prayer. And friends, I'll tell you what. God can accomplish more in a single moment of his power than we can accomplish in an entire lifetime of our self-sufficient striving. So that means that if we want to see real gospel advance, prayer can't be an afterthought. By the way, that's why we have a prayer gathering each week here at our church building. How I pray that God would stir people's hearts to be a part of that. Because that's where the victory is won, guys. It's won on our knees in prayer. Then finally, as we consider these words from Jesus in Matthew 16, 18, we're reminded that the church exists for Christ's glory. The church exists ultimately for Christ's glory. That is to make much of him. That's the reason why, as Jesus says here, he'll build his church. He's not building it so that everyone can see how wonderful we are, but rather so they can see how wonderful he is. In union, of course, with the Father and the Spirit. As Paul writes in Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Also a couple chapters before that, we read in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might, here it is, be to the praise of his glory. And in fact, Paul uses that phrase, to the praise of his glory, not once, but three times in Ephesians 1. Three times he emphasizes that as the ultimate goal of our salvation. We were saved to be trophies of God's grace so that people could look at us and see how glorious he is. And so that should be the grand ambition we have, not only for our lives individually, but for this church. To put it in more common terminology, that's what it looks like for a church to be successful. Contrary to what many might assume, the success of a church isn't defined by the number of people attending or the amount of money being donated or uh, how nice the facilities are or anything else of that nature. Instead, biblically speaking, I'd say that the main measurement of a church's success is the degree to which that church is showing forth the glory of Christ. That's the main question we should be asking. Is our church showing forth Christ's glory? That's what success looks like. And that's what I believe God's laid on my heart for our church for this upcoming year especially. Striving by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit Show forth the glory of Christ more than ever before. Do I want redeeming grace to grow numerically this next year? Sure I do. But the goal we're focusing on here at Redeeming Grace isn't to be a big church, but rather to be a healthy church and a faithful church and a church that shows forth the glory of Christ in this community. And here's what that looks like, practically speaking. Uh, taking that abstract statement and putting it in practical terms, here's what I think it would look like for our church to show forth the glory of Christ this next year. Three things, very briefly. First, that we would be known for our love more than anything else. As Paul writes to the church of Philippi in Philippians 1.9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So apparently, he already considered them to be a loving church. But his prayer is that their love would abound. The love that's already there would abound more and more. And that's my prayer for this church as well. You know, my consistent prayer for Sunday mornings is that from the very moment people step foot on this property, they would sense the love of Christ in our midst. A few years ago, uh, two ladies started attending our church. And at first, I thought they might be sisters or perhaps very close friends. But as it turned out, they were romantically involved uh, with each other and had been together for close to a decade. 
Now, our church uh, doesn't believe that's God's plan for the way uh, relationships should work. But, you know, it was such a blessing to me to see our church just love on these two ladies. Uh, to, to see people deliberately going out of their way to show the love of Christ to them. Uh, not only did they warmly engage these ladies in conversation, but uh, these ladies over the next few weeks were even invited to, out to several people's houses. And they, they joined different families for dinner. And uh, it turned out we discovered that these ladies had some financial needs. And so I saw one gentleman at least uh, pull a $100 bill out of his wallet and, and give it to her in the corner. And uh, I think we were able to get them involved in the community group and several other things like that as well. In fact, the people of our church were so loving to these two ladies that even after three or four months of their involvement in our church, uh, they still had no idea um, that our church didn't believe that their relationship was a God-honoring relationship. Now, I eventually did have to break the news to them uh, since uh, they applied for church membership and I couldn't let them become members of the church while they were in that situation. But get this, even after I told them our church's position on that issue, at least one of the ladies still wanted to continue being involved in our church because she felt so loved. That's what she told me. And uh, she, she just said that she felt so loved by our people that she wanted to keep coming. And she did actually keep coming for a season. And so praise God for that. That's an evidence of God's grace. And I pray that our church would exhibit that kind of love, to use Paul's words from Philippians 1, that we would love more and more this upcoming year. So if you see someone on Sunday, by the way, who you think is new and maybe a guest with us, let me encourage you, even if you're a shy person, take the initiative, get out of your comfort zone, and strike up a conversation with that person, and engage them, and, and just show the love of Christ to them in any way that comes to your mind, as the Spirit leads you to do. And then a second way uh, in which I'm praying that we will show forth the glory of Christ more than ever before is by deliberately reaching out to people who aren't yet Christians and pointing them toward Jesus. You know, that's the greatest way in which we can show someone love. Now, that involves praying for people on a regular basis. That involves building genuine friendships with people, often through hospitality. And, of course, that involves actually sharing the gospel with them because the glory of Christ is revealed in an unparalleled way in the gospel. And so if we're going to show forth the glory of Christ, well, of course, that means opening our mouths and telling people what he's done in the gospel to put his glory on display. And I pray that this upcoming year that we would feel a greater sense of urgency to do that than we've ever felt before. Because it really is every bit as urgent as rescuing someone from a burning building. Because, guys, people are dying every day all around us. You know, I just did a funeral this past week for someone who is 37 years old. People are dying, and they're going somewhere. 
They don't just cease to exist, right? People are dying and they're spending eternity somewhere. And we have an opportunity to make sure they know how they can spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. So as I've said, we can't change their hearts, but we can be deliberate about praying for them every day, about building friendships with them through hospitality, and about sharing the gospel as we have opportunity. Jesus will build his church, but he's determined to do so through our faithful obedience. And finally, a third way for us to show forth the glory of Christ is to devote ourselves to prayer like never before. If our efforts at reaching people are going to result in a, a steady stream of new Christians, then we've got to be a praying church. Again, as I mentioned, as God so clearly impressed on my heart that if we only engage in human effort, then we'll only see what human effort can accomplish. And if we want to see what God can accomplish, that begins on our knees in prayer. So that includes praying together, like we do in our prayer gatherings, praying in community groups, praying as families, and of course praying as individuals in our own personal times with God. Only then can we expect God's blessing. Only then, to, to borrow some imagery from the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, only then will we see fire from heaven come down to the earth and consume this sacrifice. Only then will we see the floodgates of heaven open and the spirit of God be poured out on our feeble efforts in a marvelous and mighty way.